Doing a daily Bible devotional has been the best thing that I've done for myself. My time in the Old Testament only proves to me again and again and again that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. When I'm reading the New Testament, I read it within the context of when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the New Testament is just an expansion of one of those two thoughts. Those are the two lenses through which I think with my mouth open as I read through the Old and New Testaments. Join me, won't you, for another adventure in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, and welcome to another glorious day in the Lord's neighborhood. I'm Paige, your caffeine and beauty host, and here, mm-hmm, it's my coffee. In the beginning, coffee, lo, it was very good. Well, today, we're going to continue our journey into John's three epistles. We're looking at 2 John, his second letter, and the core message in all of John's epistles to the churches in Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was the hub is a warning against false teachers. There were those who were teaching that Jesus was not God in the flesh, and they were seeking the validation for their message from the believers and their churches. In his first epistle, John, speaking to the church at large, all the house churches that had sprung up from uh, the revival in Ephesus that took place under Paul's ministry. But in this, his second epistle, is apparently speaking to a specific church, now, there's some question about that, and we'll cover that when we get to it. But the thought occurred to me, was John's message to the church in Asia Minor effective in these three epistles? I think so. Because, see, John mentions Ephesus in his revelation. Now, we read, the, we read that uh, when we read that, we see that his message to the church in Ephesus was indeed very effective. Here's an excerpt from his Revelation, chapter 2. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships from my name and have not grown weary. So, John's words in these epistles and in his gospel apparently took root, and the church out of Ephesus did indeed reject the heresies of these false teachers that John spoke so eloquently about in his epistles. So, having said that, let's get started. He starts off by saying in verse 1, The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. So who is John writing to? Well, there are two possibilities here. And for the record, whichever one you think is correct does not affect at all what he is writing about. He says here to the lady chosen by God. All right, is he talking to a lady, a real lady? Or is he writing in code talk to a Christian community? 
there's an argument for both. A strict interpretation initially would support an individual person. He's writing to a lady chosen by God, so John would be writing to a specific woman, a lady that he knows, but does not mention by name. And if this is the case, there'd be a good reason not to mention her name. It's to guard her from getting the attention of a hostile local government. If you remember the story in Ephesus, when John, when Paul preached and there's a revival, uh, the whole city got in an uproar and they chased Paul out of town. It wasn't a pleasant place to be for Christians. And history tells us later that Timothy, who was a bishop at Ephesus, after Paul left, he was actually killed by rioters in Ephesus. So Ephesus wasn't overtly friendly to this Christian faith. So John, if he's writing to a specific person, he's not going to name her name. He's going to protect her identity so she doesn't fall into trouble with that community. But having said that, the context in this letter, in my opinion, supports a reference to a Christian community and not a specific individual. And again, there seems to be a purposeful ambiguity here in order not to identify specifically any individual or individuals so as to protect them. Now, why would he talk in code talk? Well, again, we've mentioned this before, but you remember what happened when Paul headed up the revival that took place in Ephesus. There were issues with the local government. There was such a huge turn towards Christianity that it actually upset the economy of Ephesus, and the church was in hot water with the local authorities. There was so much turmoil that Paul had to leave the city. So it's possible that John came in after Paul left and is giving guidance to this community. If that's the case, then writing a letter in code talk, as if he were talking to a specific individual, doesn't point the finger at a specific group of people. To my thinking, it really doesn't matter whether he's writing to a real lady or a church. The message and admonitions are not affected no matter what our conclusions as to who the recipients are. Now again, the person doesn't introduce himself by name. He says this letter is from the elder. Again, this could be code talk so as to allow the writer to fly under the radar of a hostile local government. So by just saying the elder, he's not referring to himself, John, specifically. By simply writing to the lady, he's not referring to a specific person or a specific church. This is a very cloaked letter, if you will. And that would make sense within that timeline where the revival of the church was causing much consternation for the local governance, and he doesn't want to bring any more trouble down on them. So, But whether he's writing to a specific lady or writing to a church in code talk, as I said before, it doesn't change his message at all, as we're going to see. I'm going to choose to think that John is addressing a church and not a specific individual. In verse 4, he goes on to say, it's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Now, some think that the elder, I'm going to call him John, had only met some members of the local church there. Not all of them, but some, as in, I've met some of your members, and it's nice to see those members walking in the truth. However, it's more likely that news of the church had been brought to John, and that part of this news is that the church had suffered division as a consequence of the work of heretics, like what we saw in 1 John. There were heretics, and they left the church. Apparently, there was a segment of the church population that walked away from the church. Some did not leave with them. 
Those are the people I think John is referring to here. So he's, it's like he's saying, it's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth and not walking away from the church. Now, we've talked about this in John's first epistle about how it's hard to distinguish true believers from false believers in the body of the church. It's my opinion that we not engage in the kind of activity that ferrets out false believers. God is not calling us to do a witch hunt here. He's laying out strict instructions as to how to identify them, but let them identify themselves. Trust me, these false believers will show their heart and their allegiances eventually, and eventually these false believers will leave. If the truth of the gospel is preached plainly and simply, eventually it will offend, and the heretics will leave. So he's rejoicing here that not everybody left. And again, he's comforting them that did not leave. He's goes on to say in verse 5, And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. <laughs> you know what that command's going to be. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And this is important. Four times in verse 4 through 6, the author uses the noun command. This is his way of making clear that what he's saying is a direct expression of God's will. And how does one know that one is fulfilling that will? Well, John says the test of love is obedience to God's commands. And the test of obedience is whether one walks in love. It's, an, it's a circular argument. The test of love is obedience. The test of obedience is love. Love of God must result in obedience to the Word of God, but love comes first. The Christian faith is a relational faith. Just as I change the way I live because I love my wife, so the true believer changes the way they live because they love God. Jesus' own love was manifested by his obedience, even unto death, right? Love of God can ultimately be expressed only in action and truth. Do we love a brother and sister? Are we prepared to die for them? Obedience that does not lead to the life of love in which we love one another even unto death, that's not obedience offered to God. That's just rule keeping. Not to love means to remain in darkness, in death. Hatred of one's brother is obedience to and gratification of one's own evil nature and not obedience to God. That has nothing to do with God. I've referred to my relationship with my wife again and again because it's a good example of how this process works. If, my, if I love my wife, I'm going to act like I'm married to her, right? I'm not going to chase after other women. I'm going to do things with her needs in mind. I will place her needs above my own. If I'm going to be married to her, I'm going to act like it. And there won't be any doubt in anybody's mind who watches us who I'm married to. And I do these things because of the love I have for her. I don't do these things to manufacture love for her. I love her, and then I do these things. So the cycle of obedience and love is just kind, they just kind of feed each other. And that's what John is saying here. Love of God results in obedience to the word of God. Now, he goes on to say in verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Huh. Now, these deceivers, the precursors to the Gnostic world, 
have been classified as what is called docetists, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T. This flavor of Gnostic belief denies the reality of the human nature of Christ. They don't believe that the Christ is God coming in the flesh. They come up with all sorts of other wild definitions, but they don't accept that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the truth is, you can't call yourself a believer unless you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, this is a sly move by these false teachers, because if they convince you, if they can convince you that Jesus is not God in the flesh, then they are dismissing the claims of Jesus himself. And if you don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, then you're flying in the face of apostolic fathers and their teachings. And if you can remove that truth from the Christian world, then you're also removing, in essence, the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Why? Because the Hebrew Bible was a foundation that Jesus and the apostolic fathers taught from. So if they deny that Jesus is God coming in the flesh, they're also pushing the Hebrew scriptures aside. And once that's done, then they can make the truth anything they want it to be. So as you can see, this is a very dangerous road that they want to drag Christian believers down. In verse 8, he goes on to say, Watch out that you do not lose what we've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead, or you could say anyone who goes too far, and does not continue the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house nor welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. It's pretty hard words. See, I've seen this time and again in my 48 plus years of being a Christian. I've seen Christian leaders rise to prominence and gain incredible notoriety and fame in the world. They established television networks. They became well-known teachers in the church community. Yeah. Maybe I'm being too harsh. I'm, I'm up for that. Uh, being, I'm up. I don't think I'm being too harsh, but maybe I am. I'm not sure. You judge. Many times it seemed to me that a lot of these were grasping for ratings, TV ratings and radio ratings and grasping for followers and grasping for popularity and money. Not all of them, but enough so that it made me a bit jaded about it all. I can think of several television preachers who have come crashing to the ground after years of preaching the gospel. They've become involved in sexual improprieties or greed, and everything in the world crashed around them. See, when you embrace sin, eventually the world will see it. Eventually it shows itself. If they go too far, if they fall away like John says, they prove they were never part of us. That's John's conclusion. And then John says, whoever continues in this teaching, whoever does this, don't bring them into your house. Don't welcome them. And anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. See, in that first century culture, philosophers would travel from town to town, rent a small hall, and spend some time teaching students and earning their living in that manner. And they would go from town to town doing this. Paul sometimes did that very same thing. He, the local house churches would sometimes provide Paul a place to live and enough money to meet his needs. And he would, from town to town he would go, and other apostles, other teachers, Apollos, same thing. The Christian body would support them for their time in that town. See, hospitality was an important thing in the Christian community. And when a Christian teacher like Apollos or Paul or Peter would come to town for a time, the local believers would support them. They'd feed them. They'd house them. They'd clothe them. They would take care of their needs while they preached the gospel. 
But these false teachers would come to town, they'd rent a hall, and because they were preaching under the name of Jesus, they would expect the same support from the Christian community. These false teachers were trying to take advantage of that hospitality. And John is saying, look, if any of these people come to you, don't do that. Don't take them into your house. Don't welcome them. Don't even give them the courtesy of a traditional Christian greeting because anyone who welcomes them shares their wicked work. If a false teacher comes to you, don't bring them into your house or welcome him. Don't treat them as brothers in the faith. They are not. They are deceivers. And thus, it would be a mockery of the Father and a sin against Christ to give those who deny the Son and hate fellow believers any place of respect within the community of faith. But wait, isn't John the apostle of love? Aren't we called to love our neighbor? Yes, we are, to meet their needs when they're in need. But when somebody is coming to the body of Christ, purporting to be a teacher in the body of Christ, and what they teach is false, John says you're to push them to the side. You're not called to be violent, not called to be rude. You're not called to do anything except close your doors to them. Don't give them Christian fellowship. Don't give them support because they are not Christians. They're not believers. They're active enemies of the truth of God by the fact that they're trying to teach heresy in the name of Jesus. And they want to do this with the blessing of the community of the saints. <laughs> they're purporting to be a teacher of the gospel and they are heretics. You're not to have anything to do with them. Now, John does not suggest that the church and her children deal with false teachers in hatred or retaliation. He counsels that the false teachers be kept at a distance, lest their heresy destroy the church. In verse 12, he goes on, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete to the children of your sister who has chosen my God. The children of your sister who has chosen my God sends their greetings. Now, either he's talking to a specific lady, or if he's talking to a church, then he's also saying here, other churches send their greetings. Other churches uh, join you in your joy. It's, I tend to think that's what he's talking about here. That's his code talk for churches. And he says here, I, I, he didn't, I don't want to use paper and ink to write anymore to you. Again, I'm wondering if that's because he just doesn't want to take a chance of getting them in trouble, and he's going to just show up and face-to-face -face deal with things. See, that finishes up Second John. That's where he leaves it. And again, I'm not sure if he's talking to a specific person, if he's talking to a body of believers, but I have my suspicions. I really do think I, I'm leaning toward the side of him talking to a body of believers. It doesn't change the message. And what's the message? If these false teachers come to you, don't welcome them. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that he is God in the flesh. Don't welcome them. Now, how does this equate to what we do in the church today? Well, we're called to discern. We're called to have our eyes open. And anytime somebody argues against the truth that Jesus is God in the flesh, they're showing you a couple things. First of all, they can't be a believer and believe that. They can't be a Christian. If you disagree with that statement, your argument's with John, not me. If you are truly in God's family, you cannot believe that Jesus is anything but God in the flesh. But also, we have to realize that these people will eventually show their hands. It's not our job to point fingers and flush them out. God will do that. Just like those teachers and preachers of yesteryear uh, we talked about earlier who got incredibly popular, eventually they showed their heart and they fell. They fell into sin. 
They fell into greed. Uh, they didn't fall out of grace. That's a term we use to describe backsliders. They didn't fall from grace because they're showing that they weren't in grace. They weren't part of the family of God. They're showing their heart. Do they believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? Do they believe in the veracity and the authority and the validity of Torah, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and now the New Testament? If they dismiss any part of those two things, they're not from God. And eventually, those who embrace sin, those who are not of God, they're going to show their heart. We're called to pursue truth. We're called to believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. In closing, I, I could think of no better example of someone like Billy Graham. His entire ministry, he preached salvation through Jesus. He preached a plain, unadulterated truth of salvation. He didn't look for new catchy things to catch people's attention or special effects. He stuck to a simple message, a profound message, but a simple message. He did not change his lifestyle, He did, and neither did his message change over the years. He preached the unadulterated gospel. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He died. He rose on the third day and will one day come again. And he did not embrace sin. He did not pursue sin. See, eventually false believers show their hearts. So, John has a good message for us. Jesus is God in the flesh. And his word is a foundation of living and morality. Preach that, teach that, and eventually you will offend some and they will leave. When you do identify a false teacher who does not believe Jesus is God in the flesh, don't welcome them into the community of faith. And that's where John leaves us. All right, that's a good place for me to stop. Uh, again, I want to just remind you that this is a devotional. This isn't, uh, I don't have a degree in theology. I'm reading the Bible and I'm sharing my thoughts. And I'm doing my own thinking. I'm doing my own research. And I'm thinking with my mouth open. And that's what you're getting here. If you agree or disagree with me in any of these things, hey, email me. And you see the email at the end here, but ffog at me.com. I'd love to chat with you about it. All right, until next time, this is Paige. Here's my coffee. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ffog at me.com.